Talking to Chad Fowler, you quickly realize what true leadership means. Chad has extensive experience leading large technical organizations such as Living Social and Six Wunderkinder, being a venture partner at Blue Yard Capital, and now helping make the internet safer as chief product officer at DevCon. Did I mention that Chad also is a musician? In this episode, I talked to Chad about his work, lessons learned from music and travel, and how those apply to life and career and what is the approach to consider for one to carve out a path towards an executive role? Here's our show. Chad Fowler, how's it going? Okay, how are you? <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> it's been a while since we talked last because the last time we talked, you were still at Microsoft and now you're not and now we're very sad. I'm excited to be talking to you today. Yeah, likewise. It's been too long. It has been too long. Chad, before we dive into your career and there's a lot to talk about in your career, tell me more about what are you working on these days? I am a programmer. I'm, I'm officially called Chief Product Officer of a... Uh, front-end JavaScript security company that is called Auto, but it's a small company. And really, I spend most of my time programming and, you know, figuring out what we're going to build uh, along with the other founders. Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly doing like Elixir and TypeScript programming lately. Wow, this is not very typical for product owners, because every time I talk to product managers, the one thing that people get a little scared of is like, do I need to code as a PM? And it seems like you're a product <laughs> owner and a programmer. That's why it threw me off. You said programmer at first. Yeah, it's a you know small company. Everybody has to do everything. So I, I talk to investors. I talk to customers. I make bad opinions and judgments on design. And I write code and troubleshoot when things are broken. But that's when it's interesting. That's when you get to be a little bit of a jack of all trades. And uh, again, Given that you're a startup, that makes a lot of sense. You are a serial entrepreneur. So just looking at your background and the pedigree of products that you worked on, you were a venture partner at Blue Yard Capital. You were the CTO at Six Wunderkinder, and I'm botching the actual German name here, but those are the folks that created Wunderlist for folks that don't know and to listen to this. You've written books on Ruby on Rails. You work closely with the Ruby community. Where did it all start for you, right? You've done a lot. What was the point where it kind of kicked it off for you and said, Chad, this is your calling? Doom, the video game. And actually it was really Doom 2, if I'm being honest, but it doesn't sound as cool to say that. Uh, I was actually, my, I started my, my professional life as a saxophonist and I played in R&B and blues bands and, you know, made $50 a night on Beale Street in Memphis, Tennessee. And at the same time, I started getting addicted to playing Doom Deathmatch. And I really could spend the entire time talking about this, so I'll try to keep my, my answer brief here. But I loved it so much because like, it created this framework in which people could, create, could develop skill that the developers had no idea, you know, the developers of the game had no idea would be even possible. And it just seemed magical to me. It was early days. You couldn't play it over the internet. You had to dial each other directly or connect via serial cable. So really early days of, uh, of like first-person shooter type gaming. And I wanted to understand how it worked. One of the other horn players in the band that I was in most regularly was also a programmer. So I used to ask him questions like, okay, I know when you write a program, you type words into a document or something, and then somehow you can run it. I don't want to know how that works, you know? And so that's when he explained what compilers are. And I, I got so into this Doom community and learning to program on my own. 
that I became someone who could do stuff like patch people's game files for them when they were messed up. He wanted me to work with him at his day job uh, doing computer support. So he applied for a job for me and literally picked me up and drove me to the interview, introduced me to the manager who said, Walter says you're good. So when can you start? So I didn't even get in. That's how I got into the industry. Kind of uh, funny story. It's been 20 something years since we worked together, but now we work together at this company, Auto, for the first time, me and Walter. But that's how I started. A musician who just got passionate about making software because I was so impressed by what Doom could do that it, it set my creativity on fire. This is a very interesting story because for me, it also started with games. And I just remember there was a real-time strategy game. I think it was called like 1503 AD or something like that. And I remember that I found a bug in it that you could get the money. It was very hard to make money in that game. And you could just build this trainer that would run in the background and it would essentially inspect the memory of the process. And they just like bump your money counter up and up and up until it goes to infinity. And after seeing that, I was like, I want to program for life. This <laughs> is so the, the story about Doom resonates very, very much. Short of kind of that, it seems like early on you realize the power of the network. It's the who you know that opened some doors for you and that kickstarted your future path. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it is coming from the music industry. I, I didn't come into the computer world thinking I'll get a job as a programmer in a cubicle and that'll be it. I did it because I was excited. And when you're studying music and becoming a musician, you also don't do it because you think you're going to get a good job because you're definitely not. You do it because you think you have some creative potential. All of us musicians have some sort of delusion of grandeur at some point, or else we wouldn't be bothering to do it because it's such a hard industry. So in the computer world, I thought about it the same way. And I'm a, I'm a jazz saxophonist. And I know that the way that I would work in the jazz world, or not work, the way I would consume jazz music is listening to records from my favorite people and then looking at the list of who, who's on the record and saying, well, that drummer, Brian Blade, is on this record. So what else is he on? I'm going to go look at the other stuff that he's on, and maybe I'll like that stuff too. And, and you sort of do this kind of cool by association thing in, in the music world to discover things. So I, I figured that would apply in the software world too. And I also, you know, I was young and as a musician, was sort of a hero worship, worshiper kind of person. And so I looked for who those people would be to follow. You know, there's really a tradition in the jazz world of having a mentor and really respecting your elders and trying to follow in their paths. And there's like lineage of teaching and all that. So that led me to, at the time, like Kent Beck from the extreme programming community, the creator of extreme programming, and one of the first people to, to implement design patterns and software. Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt and the Pragmatic Programmers a lot of the early agile software development people. Yeah, I guess I, I sort of connected to them and, and met some of them. Um, I met Dave and Andy through the Ruby community because they had written the book Programming Ruby. At the time, this is way too long an answer, but you, know, you can just speed me up if it's too, too, <laughs> too much. At the time, I was learning a new programming language every Saturday morning. I would get up really early because in the day job, I was working with a team in India. So my internal clock was a little bit messed up. So I'd wake up way too early on Saturday morning. And it was many weekends in a row that I would learn a new language. And I was finally deciding I was going to settle on one. I thought it was going to be small talk, actually. I was going to start really getting serious about squeak small talk. But I found Ruby because of a post on the extreme programming mailing list. So I thought I'd try that for my last weekend. And I fell in love with it. I joined the IRC channel, which I guess was FNet back then, as opposed to Freenode or what, I don't know what it was. And there were like 12 people in there. 
one of them was the creator of Ruby and one of them was Dave Thomas. So you know, I sort of connected with those people. And from there, I just got involved and I wanted to, to learn from them because in the same way that you would from a jazz musician. So, you know, old jazz musicians, you hang out with them and then you see like, what, what, how can I help you? Do you need a ride somewhere or can I, you know, can I help you do some errands or something so I can hang out with you? So I started doing the same thing with, with those developers. And that led to co-organizing the first Ruby conference with Dave Thomas, ultimately doing basically everything I did in my career after that was, was because of that connection. Does the 10,000 hour rule apply to Ruby just as much as it applies to music? Because I always hear that, you know, if you want to become a good musician at any instrument, you have to have 10,000 hours of practice. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell who said it. Yeah, and he said it in, in his book, Outliers, and it was a reference to studies that other people had done too. Um, I think he's one of those people that does a really good job of aggregating information from academics and others. I don't know. I don't know if it applies to Ruby. It probably applies to programming or software development or some level of abstraction. I don't think a programming language Language is an instrument. It, well, it might be. It's not a class of instrument, you know, like a guitar, you could have a Stratocaster or you could have uh, a Les Paul or something and they're all slightly different. Or you could have one of these real metal guitars with a whammy bar and locking tremolo system and that stuff. And they're all still guitars. I think Ruby is probably like, you know, the Les Paul, for example. You don't need 10,000 hours to specifically master the Les Paul, but you certainly do to master whatever number of it is, but, you know, to master the guitar. And even then it's the electric guitar. So there's acoustic guitars and all different sorts of acoustic guitars and there's basses and blah, blah, blah. I think it's a bad idea to try to master one language ultimately. That's not the right way to say it. You shouldn't focus too much on, on mastering one language. I think you should think of programming languages as tools and some tools you love, and that's great. You should love the tools you use if you can, but people get a little bit too invested in specific languages and saying like, I am a Rubyist. That's not a good thing to say. Uh, it might've sounded like a better thing to say 16 years ago. That would have been a nice thing, but now it's not as good. It's not as prestigious. I'm a TypeScript developer now. I, guess, I don't even know what's cool anymore, but I think it's more important to try to be a great software developer, try to master that. And for that, you need to, to sharpen the, your own tools, you know, and, and like spread out across a bunch of different paradigms. Yeah, that, you didn't ask that question, but I wouldn't, try, I wouldn't try to be the master of Ruby. I'd try to be the master of all the different ways that you can think about software development. Somebody needs to write, or maybe there's a post already, but somebody needs to write a post that says, Programming languages as guitars. Mm. And I want to see what people think. Yeah, or it might be one of those things that gets posted on social media with like a grid of images, you know? It must exist already though. Right, and they'll show you like a, a tree and this is assembler, which means build your own guitar and start from scratch. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually curious, you know, you, you mentioned this idea of don't zero in on one language and instead know the tool. But th this brings us to the concept of meta learning or just kind of having the ability to learn skills quickly. How do you approach that problem, right? Because ideally, yeah, you learn one language, you join another team and you realize, oh my gosh, they're using TypeScript and not Ruby. I'm out of my comfort zone. How do you learn quickly? In my first job, the one that Walter applied for for me, you know, I had been a user of like the university's dial-up systems. And my first job was doing support at, at a university. And in one of the first weeks, someone walked me into the machine room and I said, how does the dial-up stuff work? And they took me over to a closet and showed me this big bank of modems. And uh, there were, I think there were two phone numbers you could use. And the person that did it, his name was Ken. He pointed at one of the banks and said, 
this is the phone number for this bank. And it was the number that I usually called. So he could show me these things. And he showed me cables coming out of the back and what they were running into. And the modems were literally like the modem I had at home. They were just, you know, uh, mounted in a rack. And we walked all through the room pointing at cables and switches and servers. And he was telling me, like, this is where your mail is. And this is a, a computer that has VMS on it or, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter anymore. The reason I say this is because the way the internet worked at that moment, at least my part of the internet that I was using at the time, was absolutely demystified. And I realized, oh, these are just computers. And they're actually just like pieces of hardware that are strung together with wires. Anyone can figure this out given enough time because it's all concrete. There's no magic here. And that is the answer to your question for me. Whenever I look at something that seems like magic and I don't, you know, I don't know how it works, I first stop and remind myself, okay, this is just a computer. Whether I'm like trouble, trying to troubleshoot something that is unbearably hard or trying to figure out a technology, I don't know. It's just a computer. Like somewhere, probably someone wrote some C code or something underneath this thing. And, you know, it was a human being with a brain that was reasoning through how to make this possible. And I start from there and think, well, what are the building blocks that make this work? That's always what I do when I don't. So I say it's always what I do. It's always what I do when I'm successful. When I don't do that, I always end up wasting time spinning my wheels, getting frustrated and sad. Basically starting from first principles, I guess, is the very short version of the, the answer. It's the same way that you would explain the cloud to someone. It's just a computer in somebody's data center. That's all it is. That That's it. That's where it starts, at least, yeah. Right. And you also mentioned extreme programming and that kind of brought back memories of reading that first book on extreme programming. And I found it so bizarre <laughs> that you had to program in pairs. Oh, man. That you would actually have somebody sitting next to you that you would code with. And I was like, there's no way that will ever pick up. Have you ever tried it? Oh, yeah. It's the only way I like to work. And, and not because I'm some sort of XP zealot now. I immediately latched onto it when I read the book, you know, and that's actually how I got into the community. I was at the bookstore browsing and I saw this little pamphlet sized book called Extreme Programming Explained Embrace Change. And I thought, well, embrace change. That's something that we all need to do because I was at a big stuffy corporation at the time. And when I read that, the stupid thing about it is that seems controversial, even from a corporate perspective. Like the managers back then were like, ah, oh, we can't have two people working on one task. That's inefficient. Well, we already had two people working on one task, but they just did it poorly and without any rigor, you know. But what I find is when I'm pairing with someone, I will focus. When I'm not, I cannot focus. I get demotivated when I'm not pairing with someone. When I am, I never get demotivated. And if so, they will help me or they'll sort of like take over or I can take a back seat while they drive and we can change roles and freshen. And I actually went to the... Um, what was like the marquee extreme programming training at the time in 2001, June of 2001, I went to the extreme programming immersion and Kent Beck was there and a bunch of, you know, the people who were like luminaries in that world and very influential on me. And one of the people that came with us from my company was not a programmer, which I was just absolutely frustrated by like, why waste a spot on this person? And we sat down together in a pair because we were forced to in an exercise and they solved a bunch of the problems and I didn't. I was typing because they didn't know how to do you know, Java or whatever we had to type in at the time, but I was not the one that was the smartest in solving the problems. And that was like a really good experience where I learned that it really doesn't even hardly matter what your experience is. You can be an intelligent contributor logically to solving problems 
and it's always better to work with someone else because you're going to get a different perspective. And, and this is something that you actually, you had an essay, I think it's called Clone Yourself, the Step-by-Step -Step Guide to Finding Freedom at Work. Kind of what you just mentioned struck a chord with me as well, where you went counter to the common narrative of find the best and brightest always. Right? Like sometimes you need a new perspective. Sometimes you need somebody that maybe is not experienced. What is kind of the foundational principle for that philosophy uh, that you have yourself? I, I don't know if there's a foundational principle, but I can say that coming from the music world, I'm a saxophone player and um, I know a lot of saxophone players who play way better than me technically that I don't like to listen to. And there's just, it's because there's something missing. So they have the skill, they have the practice, they have the experience, but they don't have the heart maybe, or they don't have the desire to, to go outside of the box. And so you, you, you talk to them about music, you're not inspired, you listen to them play, you're not inspired, but they can do the job. And if you need someone to read music and, you know, get it perfect for like a commercial, good choice. So coming into the software world, I guess I was sort of the same way that it's how a person thinks and how they approach and what their personal philosophy is for the work they're doing that is most important to me. And I ended up applying it, not to weed people out really, but it, it, there was a situation where I was hiring for 38 positions for a new development center in India. And I was in India interviewing. This was back in 2001, I guess. Uh, yeah, some, summer of 2001. We had gotten 20,000 applications for these 38 jobs. So we had a consultant help whittle it down and then we were doing the last 350 interviews or something. So it was a really interesting uh, crash course in interviewing. And it was uh, an experience where we had to sort of exclude people because we didn't have time. You know, th there were 10x the people that we needed, but there were two people in that process that were not qualified for the jobs. But when you talk to them, you just knew they were gonna do a great job anyway. And we went back and forth and argued about it. And they were too young and, you know, everything else. And we ended up hiring these two people. And I swear they were the best two people out of the 38 that we hired. And they went on to a great thing. It just woke me up to this idea. I did the opposite a few times in my career where I hired someone who was just obviously the best fit, overqualified, maybe famous. And it was terrible. They just couldn't work with people. They were too rigid, um, maybe because, you know, they're used to having their, their own way. And, and sometimes fame is created by rigidity of ideas. If you amplify the same idea, you know, it, it sort of gives you your niche and you stand out. I won't say too much more about that because, you know, those people still exist and it might be too easy to figure out who they are. But yeah, I think it's just, you know, passion and energy and, and, and heart is, is so important, along with intelligence, obviously. And then you see do you already have the skills to do it? That'd be great too. Why do you think in interviews, it's, you know, folks hesitate to hire those people today? Like what, what stops? Is it the fact that everyone wants to be so like hyper efficient and everything that we just need to ship, 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 get things done, get the best person to get it done and nobody wants to mentor them? Or what? what is the big roadblock? It's probably a little of what you said. Some of it is that not everyone is capable of mentoring even if they wanted to. And, you know, that's true at, at a small company. For example, I, I talked to a startup last week that was asking me about how to approach hiring early on. And it was a two-person startup that was, had raised a round of funding and was looking to expand. And I talked about this, this concept of hiring young, enthusiastic people. And they don't have to literally be young in age, but you know, youthful energy. It's not about working lots of hours. I'm, I'm against that sort of culture. It's about just the passion and energy you can put into something. It, it did sort of come up that the two founders of the startup, they're both too busy to mentor someone who needs the help right now. 
we can't work with them full time because they've got to go talk to people like me or do fundraising and stuff. So my advice was to find someone else that was like, you know, ready to be their peer with the idea that that person will start helping them find people and mentoring them and create a culture of that. Because I think it's important. And then if you pair, you don't have to take time out to mentor people. You just work with them one-on-one -on, -one on the same problem. And that's a wonderful thing about pairing. You learn when you do it and you learn from the people who are less experienced, but they certainly learn from the more experienced people as well without having to have a separate time when you say, okay, let me teach you about programming. It's not necessary because you get it through osmosis and there's no roadblock where they're stuck because there's always someone there that can keep pushing it forward. And you can ask questions while the thing's deploying or your Docker container's building or whatever. And realistically, I mean, all of us started from a position of, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. Like I, I think of the, like the first days when I was a program manager at Microsoft. And even then I was thinking like, I have no idea. Like this is a real product. This is, there's real users and I have never done this before. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, it, it, you know, it, it's hard to expect somebody to jump in and say, all right. And on day one, I'm just going to be shipping and doing exactly what you want me to do. So mentorship is so important. I want to talk more about your career because I actually, the, the more, again, I look at the, the gamut of things that you've been doing, the more I have this question of how would you describe your career? It seems terribly nonlinear, terribly in a good way that, you know, if you ask anyone else about a career progression, they start at some big company, they progress with the career ladder, then they become, you know, the director, the VP, this kind of step by step. Yours was different. How would you talk about your career? It's sort of been waves, but those are even nonlinear. The central theme in my career is at some point, someone decided that I should be a manager. And I thought, well, that sounds like very flattering. So let me try that. I'm not actually a good manager. I think I'm a good leader. And I'm such a reluctant manager that I'm bad at it ultimately. But not only that, it stresses me out really bad. I carry the emotional weight of an organization with me such that eventually I can't do it anymore. I have to stop. So I will then try to find a job where I can just be a programmer. And then Usually what happens is I lack the discipline to only be a programmer and I get more and more responsibility and ultimately I'm leading something again. So it's that sort of a wave up and down, or I don't even know what up and down are in that situation, but you know, where to and from management, though, I guess it's more like, I don't know what you call this sort of, you know, it's not a curve, it's a slope up and a drop. Like a sine wave? No, it's not a sine wave because that would be a gradual, I don't know. I don't know anything about anything, but... <laughs> Maybe it's like a sawtooth. I think that's what it is. It's like half of the Balmer peak. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, and it's been large companies and small companies and large management roles and tiny management roles. And I can say that I've just been really lucky and privileged and, you know, all of that. And I've been able to change when I don't feel like doing what I'm doing anymore. And I know that that's a very special place that I've gotten myself into and I am literally privileged to be in. What helped you personally to be successful in all the roles that you've taken? Because again, we talk about the nonlinear path, but given the the experiences, you know, if you're a partner at a venture firm versus an engineer versus a CTO or a product owner, you probably have a different collection of things you need to do or things you need to be good at. How do you tackle those? And again, what helped you personally be successful? I can't say I've done a good job at everything that I've tried, but I would say that the underlying foundation gives me permission 
to fail a little bit is that I listen to people. I empathize with them as deeply as I can. That's a skill that I hold to be very important. Uh, and I think it comes actually from my history as someone with bipolar disorder. When I was a young adult, I really suffered from bipolar disorder. And, and that meant that I had to spend a lot of time learning how I processed emotions. And, and that led me to hyper-awareness of not just my own processing, but others, I think, in the best cases. In the worst cases, it's me really strongly believing I understand how someone feels when I don't. But you know, if you listen a lot, that, that can still be okay. So that's sort of my lucky foundation. That's just a personal quirk, I guess. Turns out that's really important in all work. If you're a programmer and you listen closely to, you know, the quote unquote business owner, for example, the first thing that happens is they believe you're listening to them. Even if you only appear to be really, it creates a good relationship, but it also means that you will hopefully understand their motivations for asking for what they're asking for, which leads you to both build what they want and build what they need when they don't really understand how to explain what they want. And then, you know, if you're, if you're going to manage people, obviously listening and empathizing is um, one of the most important things you can do. Uh, I think too many managers don't realize the position of power that they're in because they don't want to own up to it, especially younger ones. And, and I should say, especially mentally healthy people that are, <laughs> that are managers. Because, you know, like, I, I don't know about you, but as I've been a manager before, if someone calls me the boss, I hate it. And I will like, you know, say, no, don't call me that. I'm not your boss, you know, but I am. And they know that I am and they know that their pay raises will be affected by how I feel about what they've done and stuff. And, and, and so it's really important as a, a manager to understand how you might affect someone's daily mental health. And, and, and so everything else is a skill that, again, you can go back to first principles, you know, like budgeting or whatever, you know, I remember the first time I was, I was told, well, you have a million dollar budget now, and, you know, I'm amazed that I make $20,000 a year, much less that I could screw up a million dollar budget. So I just had to go learn about it and I'd get a, you know, like, how do you read a balance sheet? I don't know. So I read business books, started, start at the bottom. And that's what I do with everything, I guess. The venture capital, that, was, that started in 2016 with a venture partner deal. And even though I'd been in startups in senior roles and like helped drive fundraising, I just ignored a lot of the details and the words I didn't understand for a while until I started getting involved with the VC firm and you can't anymore. So now I have to learn what all this junk means. You know? <laughs> but yeah, ultimately, you have to listen to people and empathize first and, and, and care about people. And then you know, hopefully be in a position where you can be confident enough to, to deal with your, your gaps and fill them over time. And again, I know that I'm speaking from a position of privilege when I say that. So listening is critical. How else can managers develop the sense of empathy? Or what else can managers do to develop that sense of empathy? Because there is this misconception where there, there is kind of the spectrum on which you can be empathetic. And a lot of folks think that, well, I don't, I don't want to be too friendly with my employees because then, you know, I can't deliver hard news or I can't say that, you know, you're underperforming because like, well, you're my friend. <laughs> yeah. What can managers do to develop this good sense of empathy while still maintaining, well, I don't want to say professionalism, but it's more of a kind of a productive work environment. Empathy, 
I think some people misunderstand the word empathy to mean also being nice. So you could be empathetic and be absolutely horrible to people. That would mean you're, you know, some kind of very strange sociopath. But it's possible to really understand how someone might be feeling and then want them to feel worse. I don't think there's any conflict between empathy and being able to have hard conversations for that reason. In addition to that, though, uh, something I've learned over time, and it's kind of bizarre, it may make me sound sick, but sometimes it's the hard conversations that are the best and that make me give me energy as a manager, because you will probably recognize this from yourself in some role or colleagues that you've seen. When someone is underperforming and it just goes on and on, nobody's confused about that. Basically, the manager and the person reporting to them are in some kind of weird social prison where they're not talking about it, but everyone knows it's there. The, at the moment when it's openly talked about in a constructive way, that's when you're freed from that prison. Telling people hard news or you know, giving them critical feedback as a leader is compassionate if you do it the right way. And not doing it is lazy and selfish and cowardly. There's a guy named Jerry Colonna who does leadership retreats and stuff. And he's got a podcast and I can't remember the name of it, but he's easy to find. He's well-known leadership sort of coach person. There was, there's one topic that he teaches, which is called something like fearless compassion or no, I, I should have looked it up. Not that I knew I was going to want to talk about it, but we can do it later. Basically, it's just this concept of being like fearless in the face of this confrontation because you know you're going to be helping someone with it. And that's one of the hardest things to learn as a manager, actually. When you unlock that and, and you can internalize it, you will be better and you'll also be able to live with management in a better way. So I don't know how you can develop empathy, but at least managers need to know that it's, it's so important. They need to know that little remarks or even looks that they might give can really hurt people and be careful about those and then be very deliberate and open in the right setting with critical feedback and to understand that that feedback is both compassionate and constructive for the people they're giving it to. I think there's another book on the topic called Radical Candor that kind of talks about some of this. And how do you personally, I'm curious, are tackling the issue of hurt feelings in this context? Because you're absolutely right. It is a very hard conversation to tell somebody that you're underperforming. And it all comes down, of course, to delivery of how you're saying it. You're not just going to say, hey, you suck at your job. Right, that's probably the wrong approach to go about it. But people will inherently look at it and say, well, this person doesn't like me or this person thinks that, you know, oh, I'm doing a bad job. Well, I'm trying my best. What's your approach and your experience to tackle these kind of conversations? Uh, I, I think, you know, part of what I said about not letting it stew, that is very relevant here, because if you let it stew, you probably actually won't like, you know, if you're a manager and you're letting someone just get away with sucking, eventually you're not going to like them too much. You might not really dislike them as a human, but you're not going to look forward to talking to them. You're not going to look forward to hearing from them in any way because they're a bad thing, you know, in, in your daily work. If though, as soon as you notice something in some regularly scheduled appropriate forum, you let them know and you do it in a very specific way, usually it won't hurt anyone's feelings. And if it does, it's because their feelings were going to get hurt anyway, or because you just delivered it in a way that's not compassionate, you know? So I think if you're always thinking like, especially inexperienced managers, they can think of themselves as being the boss instead of thinking of themselves as being uh, of service to the organization. 
if you think of yourself as being someone who is there to serve your organization and to serve your people and to help them be better at what they do in any way you can, doesn't mean you're the best person. In fact, in most cases, the manager would not be. You will tend to deliver the messages the right way, I think. But if you think you're the boss and they're inconveniencing you by not doing well, then you will tend to deliver the message in the wrong way. And you will probably not be a good manager in really any way that's fundamentally true. I like to also think of these conversations as sometimes being very, almost disarming, where if you constantly sugarcoat and say, oh, no, you're doing nice. You know, like, how can I improve? No, you're doing well, whatever. Just keep doing what you're doing. That is, like I said, a very cowardly way of getting out of the problem and then drop a performance review at the end of the year and say, actually not. Yeah. Versus when you're up front and just saying, okay, well, here's where I think there is an area of improvement. And I, I think the perception could be very, very different. Yeah. Well, if, I mean, if you always say everything's okay and then you drop a bad performance review, then you don't deserve to have the job, or at least you deserve one chance and then you don't deserve to have the job next time if you do it. It's never true that someone should, I mean, the way I approach that, if someone asks me how they should improve what they're doing, I will at least stop and think about it. And I will say like, I was going to say this for this reason, but I changed my mind because you know, if I really can't think of anything, I'll at least talk about how I explored possible avenues. But usually there's something, you know, and when someone's asking for feedback, it's because they want it. So it's still possible to say, you know what, I think you're great. And if it were up to me right now, I would say you get a great review. But here's something you can improve since you asked. So don't take this the hard way. If you really want to work on it and get better and better, do this. And if I can't think of anything else, I will say, your career might be limited by the fact that you're not doing these other things to get to another level. I had that conversation at Microsoft with quite a few people that I thought were doing a great job. So it would be, well, what do you want out of this? And if it's not what you're doing now, then let's just talk about the difference between what you're doing now and what you should be doing to be where you want. And that's a good way to talk about performance too. This is such a good insight too, because what got you to a specific point where you are right now might not be what's needed to get to that next level. And executing well on what the expectations are for your current level is not necessarily going to be, you know, the more you do of that, that will get you to the next level. And that that's a trick that it takes some time to learn. And, but to your point of, you know, you're, you're doing well, this is the most unsatisfactory piece of feedback that I have ever gotten. When you ask for feedback, how can I improve? You're doing well, just keep doing whatever you're doing. <laughs> what, yeah, that might be a clue that whoever it is wants you to keep what, doing what you're doing, exactly. Uh, right, so like not, not to read too much into that feedback, but at the same time, that is not terribly helpful if you have aspirations to go to kind of the, the next right. level. And speaking of the next level, you know, we're gonna get back to the Six Wunderkinder, which is uh, the company that you worked for. When you joined that, that seems like a departure from the roles that you previously held. So you were working at a startup that's been laser focused on solving one problem really well. And this is task management. I've been a big fan of Wunderlist since the very beginning. How did you land that role? Like what led you to, to that startup? In a way, it wasn't too different from what I was doing right before that because I was SVP of technology at Living Social and we were doing one thing really well and then a bunch of other things not very well. But you know, the main thing was that we were the number two in the daily deals space at the time, which was all hot. But there I was managing. So what I found is when I changed my LinkedIn at Living Social and said SVP of technology at Living Social when it was a unicorn at the time, 
suddenly I got so much recruiter spam from executive headhunters that I just archived it. But one day I got one that said CTO Berlin. And I don't know why I clicked on it. Berlin is an interesting place. You know, I, I had the stereotypical idea of it as being a place where you could go and do pretentious avant-garde stuff. And that sort of appeals to me. If you ever listen to my music, you'll know what I'm talking about. I read the description and it was as if it had been written specifically for me. These people, they need me is what they want, you know? So it turned out they did. They did actually write it specifically for me, but they didn't put my name on it, but they wrote it so that I would identify with it and want to meet them. It was the headhunter that did it. He's really good, this guy. And so, yeah, I went out there and talked to them. They had a young team. They had built a product that... Uh, it was, you know, writing the app store craze, the first version, people loved it said it was beautiful. I thought it was beautiful too, you know, delight, uh, delight to use. Looking back on Wonderlist one, it was a hideous titanium app. So one of those like early attempts at making HTML work for mobile apps that just didn't work very well. You know, it was this ugly, heavy wood theme, and, but they, they had gotten like a million users in the app store really quickly. And they had built something with this young team that was just not going to work. So they needed, kind of needed like a grown up to come help them figure out what to do. And they had ported their stuff to Ruby on Rails and it had fallen apart. So they were about to launch the second version, which was going to be a catastrophe. And I think they sort of knew it was going to be a catastrophe before it launched. So they started looking for who was going to come save them from this disaster. And that ended up you know, being me that did it. They actually launched it before I started. And one of the VCs, he's actually a partner in, in Blue Yard, where I'm a venture partner. He was on the board of Wonderlist at the time. And when we launched our rewrite of that rewrite, he said, hey, if it's up for longer than 30 seconds, you'll know that it's going to be okay. Because <laughs> when, when the last one launched, it was down in 30 seconds. So anyway, that's it. I, I was the, the, the grown up, and you know, that is also that's from the perspective of being able to deal with volatile personalities and volatile situation uh, as evidenced partially by my experience and largely, I think, just by my persona on stage as a speaker and a grown up that had done everything from you know old crusty 90s application development and Perl CGIs and stuff through being a big part of the, the Ruby on Rails craze when that was taking place. It's interesting because you mentioned you you had the role of the CTO and did you actually relocate it, like you uprooted your life in the US to move to Berlin? Yeah, we lived in Washington DC at the time. Yeah, that seems like a, such a big move. And it's not like you moved states, you, you moved to a different continent with different time zone. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in, uh, in 2002, we moved to India too. And so we had a little experience, me and my wife, that's who the we is, Kelly. Uh, we had some experience uprooting and going somewhere weird. And when we agreed to go to India, in fact, when we moved to India, Kelly had never been there before because I had traveled for work and she had not. So Berlin, we had at least, I think we, we went there. Oh yeah, we went there for RailsConf Europe that we were organizing in 2007. And like the city, uh, my grandmother is German, but I didn't speak German. We had also just moved to DC two years earlier and basically gotten rid of almost everything we owned so we could live in a tiny apartment in the city. So it ended up being pretty easy. And when we were moving to DC, we were, we were thinking of moving from Colorado to New Orleans. So uh, I guess we were just nomadic spirits anyway. Um, the India experience, 
being able to live in a different country with such a different culture is absolutely the most important thing that I ever did for my life in terms of those sorts of decisions, you know, other than obviously getting married and, and such, but because it was so eye-opening that we both crave doing something like that again. Um, when we were in India, we learned Hindi and that led to being translators for a Tibetan monk when we moved back to the States, which led to us being directors of a nonprofit supporting Tibet, Tibetan monastic refugees and so many interesting experiences from that. So we just sort of learned how moving around and getting shocked by culture could open your mind so much and, and change how you perceive the world that we wanted to try it again. This is, again, a very atypical approach because most folks think of, you know, I just want to settle down, just have a house, just be done with it. Instead, you chose to go to India, then go to Germany and not for, you know, a three month vacation, but you've been there for a long time. I have to say that that is my wife's influence. We lived in Memphis. And as I mentioned, I played in uh, Beale Street and bars and stuff, you know, early on. And, and I got an opportunity for uh, a job during the dot-com boom that would have taken us from Memphis to Louisville, Kentucky. And I was absolutely terrified of the idea of moving to somewhere exotic like Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I think it's like five-hour drive or something from Memphis. You know, it's just, it's ridiculously non-threatening but I could not imagine doing something crazy like that. And she talked me into it. And that was definitely like, for me, that was a salary doubling experience. And, you know, back then you could literally job hop and double your salary because it was the dot-com era before it crashed. What I wanted to do was work on the same crappy little team in the big corporation I was in, sitting in the cubicle with my buddies, screwing around with trying to compile the Enlightenment Windows Manager on Solaris. You know, that experience led to going to India, which by the time you've done that, you're not afraid of anything anymore. We, we actually thought we would want to settle down, but it was like when we were in our 20s. That's when we thought, yeah, let's settle down and get a house and, you know, do the whole thing. And at this point, the idea of it is not appealing at all. Uh, we have a house in Arkansas now, and Arkansas is a place where you can live for, um, you know, compared to Washington state, for example, it's essentially free to live here, which means you can have a house and keep it and then still move around the world and always have a place to come back to. So that's sort of the idea, of course, pre-pandemic, who knows what's going to happen now, but uh, we imagine we'll live in different places for as long as we can. I love the perspective. And it's something that I'll probably have to talk to my wife now, but I was like, maybe we should consider that. That seems very, very interesting and very, uh, again, as an immigrant myself, knowing how people even live in a different country is so key to building that understanding of both kind of the perspectives and the struggles and just how privileged we are living where we are. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, just the, like, the take on happiness um, you know, living in India and interacting with people who had uh, monetarily so much less than we did seeing how much happier they could be still than we could be in certain situations. It was enlightening. And also just, you know, as someone who is predominantly white myself, living in an environment where everywhere you go, people look at you like, oh, what are you doing here? That was a good thing to go through. And then to come back home and, you know, internalize as well. I'm putting it on my to-do list. So essentially move somewhere for more than three months. Yeah, that's a good one. Talking back to you again, your, your career, and I know we have these very insightful digressions and I love them, but I do have a question about being a CTO because I uh, have not really talked to many CTOs myself. 
And there's this idea that, you know, CTO, chief technical officer, well, are you the chief engineering decision maker where people just come in and say, Chad, so we're trying to decide which algorithm do we implement? Which one of these two do you pick? Or are you kind of the engineer with the most experience that people know that, oh, you've built this one framework or you've built this one tooling so you know the ins and outs of the system? What does the CTO do? And what were your responsibilities? It differs in every business. It differs depending on the size of the business, stage of a startup, if you're talking about startups, personality of the CTO, and a lot of other things. Basically, there are different structures. In some structure, the CTO owns all of engineering and is like the manager of the engineering organization, the boss. And then another structure would be the CTO is the chief nerd type person that does the sort of stuff you were talking about. What I have done, like at Wonderlist, is I was sort of like chief architect but not really. Um, I, I think a, a central theme for all of these different incarnations of CTO is being someone who is focused on being the bridge between the technology and the business goals. And you know, ideally trying to figure out what innovation can be brought um, based on the, the limits of what's possible technically and hopefully pushing those limits. Sometimes I was the person who knew how to do stuff that nobody else knew how to do. You know, like at Wonderlist, I knew how to do really low-level Linux troubleshooting when they had performance problems, where the first thing I would do is run S-trace on the process and see what the system calls were that it was making, and like, you know, TCP dump and stuff because I was old and moldy and that's how I think. But ultimately, I was not the best at anything that we did at Wonderlist. I was just the person that sort of pulled it all together. And, and this is a key thing with all leadership positions, I think, that I had the accountability for the technology. That was my job. So I was accountable to the business for delivering great technology, whatever that meant in, in the business you know, I was in. And with Wonderlist, it meant making clients that performed really, really well and servers and a synchronization protocol that was like magic, you know, the real-time sync that we did, which at this point is just like everyone has to have that or else it's embarrassing. But back then it was... It was amazing to set up a bunch of devices and like click a, a button, all of them do the wonderless chime and the task gets checked off, you know. But I didn't do any of those things. Like every really cool thing that we did, I can think of another person's name that was responsible for it. I was just sort of trying to, I wasn't managing them either. I was working on the stuff with them, but I was sort of like a, a bee pollinating or something, you know, like trying to, to spread the culture and message that I wanted. Uh, and the culture, by the way, that I had at Wonderlist as CTO that I tried to establish absolutely was not one where I would evaluate which algorithm to use. It was the opposite in terms of technology. Like a lot of CTOs will say, this is our tech stack this is what we're going to do. And I felt I was accountable and therefore authoritative for our tech stack. But my rule was you could deploy anything you wanted as long as it fit into a certain framework of, you know, it had to work, it had to be unit tested and had to work with our deployment system and had to work with our monitoring system and you know, all the other conventions we had. And that led to, you know, if you're an intern, you could be the first person to deploy a Rust application and that would be fine as long as you did those things. And there was one other person at least that could maintain it. And the code was in microservices, so it could be small, you could throw it away. So someone who was sort of an intern at the time, not really, he, he had been a marketing intern, then he became our support person and then migrated into programming. He wanted to do Elixir, and this was in 2013, so it was really early in Elixir time. And I said, "Okay, you know, you know the deal. 
And I think it took nine months before he actually did it because he, he knew it was his responsibility to do all these things. So he didn't do it. He, he had to help hold the weight of that responsibility and no one could be sitting around complaining that I wouldn't let them do something, you know, uh, or that I would like micromanage them. So that was, that's what I tried to do as CTO there is create a culture like that. It's interesting because again, it goes counter to the narrative of you as a CTO, you tell people what to do, right? No, don't pick this, pick Java, pick Ruby or something instead of, sure, let's try it out and see what happens. Yeah, I, I think like the context there, I told you they had deployed a disaster, you know, uh, and in fact, it was people who weren't there anymore who really had done the, the disaster before I got there. But they were also afraid to do anything at that point. I felt like it was important to just take the fear out of everyone. And so whether it be fear of making a crazy decision on tech choice or fear of just changing the existing system. One of the first things I did when I got there was made them crash the existing system so that we could get back out of them the mess together. And we started crashing it every day by just like, you know, taking servers out of the pool uh, until it couldn't handle the load anymore. So we could in inspect what was going on, but without the fear that we wouldn't be able to get back out because it's just a computer, you know, we'll figure it out somehow. Chaos engineering before chaos engineering. I guess. I think they might've even had the chaos engineering thing at the time. Who knows? But yeah. I think it was Netflix who had that what's called a chaos monkey, what they called their, yeah. their tool that would do the exact same thing. So th this is really cool. You had these very senior roles. So you were the CTO, you were an SVP at Living Social, you were GM at Microsoft. So very senior. And what's interesting about this is that a lot of these roles are very, have very opaque tracks as to how you get there. Right? If somebody that is at a low level, they're an intro PM or an engineer, and you ask them, what do you want to do? Oftentimes you kind of hear like, I want to be a CTO. I want to become the VP of something, but how do you get there? That's the puzzle. How did it work for you? How did you figure out the path of what you need to do to become this leader? I don't know, but I can say having been in these roles that what you really should want is the financial benefits of those roles because the roles themselves usually suck in a lot of ways. It's not as fun as being a programmer. So, you know, I've, I've been in that situation myself where I want to do this, or I've, I know a lot of people have talked to them, you know, the proverbial water cooler conversation. Usually the reason that you want to do it is partially financial and largely about ego. And I don't think that is a good foundation from which to get there. However, you can think of counterexamples right now of people who are very egotistical and you know, think for, about themselves and they just want more recognition and they still succeed. Everyone knows that that's the case. I don't know how it happens, but probably weak leadership that, that continues to promote them. But I can't imagine that that's a good outcome, you know, because when you get the GM role, if that's how you're motivated, you're probably now even more unhappy because you realize that didn't make you happy. So now you need another one, whatever. So for me, I have always been someone who, as a technologist, has cared about what the business is trying to accomplish with the technology. And not in a way that I like, you know, talk about it in order to impress people, but more that I ask questions that make it clear that I'm trying to figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And I think you can take that as a germ of an idea and just, you know, blow it up a few levels. If you are focused on the business and its success in a way that demonstrates that you understand what success means for the business. You're thinking creatively and you're not just following orders, but you're trying to trying to meet an organization's goals. And you're doing it in a way where you're helping other people in the process. You're bringing your colleagues along with you. 
rallying them to help you uh, achieve things or just actively trying to help them do better. People see that and that's what you need. I mean, you think about what you would need if you were running a company and you wanted to promote someone from a team of individuals, you would want someone who understands what you're trying to do, is actively trying to help you get it done and is actively trying to help everyone else get better at getting it done. If you do those things, you can also say that you have, at least on those planes, you can say that you have done a job with integrity and you can feel good about it if you get promoted. But I I think if you're fixated too much on getting a promotion, you should think a lot about what the reasons are. And I'm not saying your reasons are necessarily wrong, but you should think about whether they are. Because the job is gonna be terrible, it's gonna be hard. The more responsibility you get, the harder it gets. You get more money, yes, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it's worth it. And ultimately we're all humans and, you know, we're on the hedonic treadmill and a day can be just as bad when you're making tons of money as a general manager as when you're making less money as a programmer. When I wrote my first book, uh, which was, it's now called The Passionate Programmer, but it had a terrible name before. Before I started, I had a talk with myself where I said, you want to have written this book, but you've written a couple of chapters for other books before, and it's really grueling work. And it brings out all these anxieties of like, am I worth writing this book? Who's going to read it? And so if you're wanting to do this so that you can get the recognition of being an author, it's not going to be worth it. If you're wanting to do it for money, it's definitely not going to be worth it. I knew that. You have to pick a different motivation for this before you start, or else you shouldn't do it. And the motivation I chose for that book, which was a career book, actually, for software developers, was if one person can read this and claim that it changed their life in a positive way, it was worth all the effort that I put into it. Um, So that way I didn't have to worry about appealing to everyone or, you know, how cool I was going to look or whether anyone would like it. As long as one person might, I felt like that would be worth it. And when it got hard, that's what I focused on. I think you take that same sort of idea and apply it to your job. People will recognize it and they'll want to work with you and they'll want to put you in positions of influence. And the output of that job is so much different when you're actually, you have a motivation that goes beyond things like money or recognition, right? Like, I mean, you're talking about books. Look at Amazon at, you know, authors that shell out a new book every week. Like, how do you think the quality of the book is versus somebody that spent a year writing and kind of thinking about the ideas they want to put, thinking how they want to convey something? And that is so, craft is so important. I think this is where I think the motivation itself is key. And you're so right on the the idea of the hedonic treadmill, because I think when I was a newbie too, I was the same where I was thinking, you know what? If only I can get to senior, that would be so great. But then you get to seniors like, if only I can get to the next level. So it, it just never stops, right? Like there's always going to be the next level. So if that's the motivation, that's, eh, yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. We talked about career. And in addition to your career, in addition to being a deep technical expert, you're also a musician that you alluded to at the very beginning of the podcast. And you have your own music label. How did that come about? You know how I talked about the musician cool by association thing earlier? When I was in India, I was at a bar with my wife talking about what I had learned in business, you know, because I was now in business instead of a musician, which is funny because music is a business. That's why we all fail at it. And I thought, I've I've got so many friends and colleagues that are so great that are just not rising above the fray. And I had an idea, maybe I should put some of the money I make at work into hiring musicians to play with my friends 
so that people will follow that chain of cool by association. So uh, I've got a, a pianist friend that I worked with named Chris Parker that I, I lived with in Memphis and we grew up in the same neighborhood in, in Arkansas, knew each other as teenagers and he's brilliant. And I thought I'm going to hire like a famous bass player and drummer and make a record with him. I never did it, but I moved back to the States uh, after Microsoft acquired Wonderlist and, and not, not because of work reasons. I ended up moving back to Memphis for family reasons. And I reconnected with these people and, and I actually got contacted by Chris who I hadn't talked to in years. And, and Chris said, I've got this thing where I'm writing this suite to commemorate the integration of Little Rock Central High School, the 60th anniversary, which is a major civil rights moment in U.S. history where nine brave black children went to all-white Central High School and um, they ended up having to be protected by the National Guard. R really amazing story of these kids and horrific story of you know what the people here in Arkansas did to them. But he and his wife wrote a suite and they were going to get a uh, Grammy-winning drummer Brian Blade to play like, at Central High. And so Chris reached out to the people that he knew that were like his dream band. And somehow I was still in that list, even though I was not really playing that much anymore. And we did it. And I, I found out, you know, all the mechanics of how we hired Brian. And, and I realized, hey, you know what? That idea I had, I can actually afford to do that. So we put together a session with some of our heroes and I funded the whole thing. Uh, and the idea at first was we were just going to put together the session and record it and then find a record label. But that's not really how it works in the jazz world. Basically, that means it doesn't matter who's on your record. We don't care. No, I'm not going to reply to your email. So I made I made my first record, which was a thing called Dopalarian's garden party, a uh, long story about what any of that means. And it, it wet my appetite. Um, we ended up putting out the, the suite too. And because it's jazz people, hold on a sec, I'll show you some for the video. Because it's jazz people, they still want physical media. So we have this CD that we had printed. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's the No Tears Suite. You can listen to all this stuff free online. And I'm not on every record, but here's another one we did in New York in 2019, I guess. Now I've got, I don't know, 15 records, not all of which I'm on, with many of my heroes on them uh, and a bunch of interesting stuff coming out. And I'm really just applying what I've learned in the business world all these all these years to, to music uh, and trying to create a platform that the musicians will appreciate as opposed to, you know, being someone that tries to take advantage of them. And I think being a musician myself uh, helps a lot because I sort of understand what motivates them. And it's not money. They need it to survive. And in avant-garde jazz, they don't get much of it. So I try to help there too. But yeah, that's the, the very long backstory. Uh, the label's called Mahakala Music. And Mahakala is the Buddhist deity, of, like the wrathful emanation of the deity of compassion. I mentioned that I was a translator for a Tibetan monk for a while and it's sort of a reflection on those times. I have a tattoo of Mahakala on my, on my shoulder. And I do this not because I'm Buddhist, which I'm not, but because if I don't practice compassion daily, then I'm a real hypocrite with this, <laughs> with this tattoo. So it's a reminder. And yeah, I, I have Mahakala on my, my alto saxophone there behind me uh, engraved as well. Just a reminder to be compassionate. This is a wonderful story. And, and uh, again, just kind of like the best startups come from founders that actually deeply care about what they're doing. They deeply care about solving a problem that they have. And it seems like you found that in music. And I have a question for you to wrap up our podcast. What's one uncommon piece of advice 
that you would give folks early and in their mid-career stages? Something that eludes a lot of folks, but in your experience, you found it to be very important. I tend to have worked on the on the fringes of technology. And I think that's a big part of what has led to the success I've had. And it doesn't mean that everyone will have the same success if they do it. But when I got into Ruby, I started bringing it to work um, at General Electric. And my coworkers literally snickered when I mentioned the word Ruby because they just thought, this is some crazy stuff. That guy does all this crazy stuff. What a goofball. Because it was that early. You know, that was year 2000. As I said, I joined the IRC channel at the time. There were 12 people in it. You know, no one cared about Ruby and especially outside of Japan, because all the docs were in Japanese at the time. So sort of always playing at the fringe puts you in this interesting place. Um, Paul Graham had a, an essay called Beating the Averages back in the 2000s. And, and in his essay, he talked about startups that all tend to choose the average technology. And he said, you know, the average startup is an interesting fact about startups. The average one fails. And so if you choose everything average, you're probably going to be right there with them failing. Now, that's not true of programmers, but if you choose the average technology and you always choose the average path, then you're probably going to end up with a pretty average outcome. That's my piece of advice. Don't be afraid to like diversify your technology portfolio and learn some things that seem like they might be edgy or a waste of time, you know, if you have the ability to spend time on that kind of thing. I think that's also helpful even outside a technology field. So this is this is great. Well, Chad, for folks that want to follow you online, learn more about what you're doing and uh, keep up with your adventures, where should they go? I guess Twitter. At Chad Fowler is my Twitter handle. Handle. I mostly just retweet my music stuff now and rage tweet about Donald Trump and people like that. But you could follow for that too. Every once in a while, I post something about technology. I'm not really so followable anymore, I guess, though. I don't have much to say. I think it's important for folks to realize that we're all people and, you know, we're not crafting a persona on Twitter. It's a reflection of what we care about. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with what you said. But Chad, thank you so much for being here with us today. Learn a lot. And I hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you, Dan.